This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 182 from Monday, March 22, 2010. Astrometry. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. Uh, now, i got one little piece of news, which is that we've had a couple of radio stations ask if they, if they can run Astronomy Cast uh, on the air and want our permission and our yes please <laughs> yes. so so if you if you run a radio station if you know a radio station and you want to use astronomy cast feel free be our guest free don't pay ever yeah it's totally fine with us it'd be great if you want to do that college radio npr or here in canada on the cbc cbc call me and uh, you know abc in australia anything for free go ahead play it all you like uh, use our content for any purpose whatsoever. So just so that's all clear. But yeah, if you want to email us and want us to do a little promo for you, no problem. That'd be cool. So, <laughs> all right, let's move on to the show. So astronomers have been cataloging star positions for thousands of years from the first calculations made by Hipparchus to the more recent star catalogs made by the spacecraft named after him. This is astrometry, another way to find our place in the universe. All right, Pamela, well, I guess we need to kind of go right back to the the earliest age, and I guess at some point, humans realized that there was some kind of rhyme or reason to the position of the stars, that they weren't going anywhere, and that <laughs> there was, you know, that there's a way to map this. So, how, so, and I think the name that comes to mind is Hipparchus. So, so how did this all come about? Well, it, it's impossible to know exactly when people realize that, well, wow, you, you see the plow every night. You see whatever your favorite constellation is year after year after year, always appearing in the same season. Star maps, though, those started being made originally by the ancient Babylonians. That's where we start getting squirrely names like Hubenel Ganubi for different <laughs> stars and Betelgeuse, which leads to many arguments over Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, whatever. Right. But we, we have to thank the Babylonians for that name. Yeah. So those wow. names all came down from the ancient Babylonians. But in terms of things that we can get our hands on and study easily, well, we can't necessarily get our hands on the work by Hipparchus, not in all cases, but his work, his original star maps from basically 15, uh, 150 BC, his original work throughout his life, it was used as the base information for the Amalgetz by Ptolemy, which is perhaps one of the most famous early astronomy books. So, 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 so who was Hipparchus? He was a mathematician. He was a geometrist. He was working in the Mediterranean. He was at Rhodes for some of his measurements. He was in Egypt for others. He was a Greek. And as he traveled and as he measured, he worked with others to try and figure out, if I'm seeing this, what are you seeing when you are? And it was in putting all these pieces together that Hipparchus was able to make some really amazing discoveries. He, he was one of the early scientists who 
based its discoveries not on philosophy, not on shadows on cave walls, but on looking. And so he noticed things like the moon has an obvious change in size over time. When he watched it through what's called a diopter, he was able to tell that sometimes it was a little bit bigger, sometimes it was a little bit smaller. And this was an interesting discovery back in the days when, well, we thought all orbits were perfect circles. Right, right. I mean, the moon changes like 15% from its sort of most distance point to its closest point and actually changes in brightness. Like there are some full moons that are a lot brighter than others. And they were able to calculate this. And noticing all of this, he sat down and he tried to run the math, assuming epicycles, to try and figure out what's going on based on the changes in size that he was able to observe. So epicycles, this is where the the moon is orbiting the earth in a perfect circle, but then it's on a little tiny circle on top of the perfect circle. So right. you can imagine it like a bicycle reel that the moon is attached to the outside of the bicycle wheel and the bicycle wheel is rolling itself around the moon's perfectly circular orbit. Wow. And so you end up with the moon essentially doing loop-de-loops around the earth but never crossing over the same point on the loop-de-loop. So just like a bicycle, you don't end up with uh, the rim doing weird things that rolls across the ground. You always end up with constant movement forward of the tire. The moon constantly moves forward. Right. And so he was able to use, by looking at the moon from different places on the Earth, work out its distance. And he also used eclipses as a specific way to make sure he got the timing right. So by having him in one place watching the eclipse and noting, I see the sun blocked out 100% and having somebody else somewhere else looking at the eclipse and saying, I see it blocked out this percent and figuring out what angular shift that must imply. So if you hold your thumb up and you block out a distant object and you blink from one eye to the next, you'll see your thumb bounce left and right. Well, if you're at two different points on the Earth's surfaces, on the Earth's surface, and you look at the moon against the sun, and you see the moon bounce left and right, well, you can use geometry to figure out where the moon has to be located. That's amazing. Amazing they could work out that stuff so long ago. And they, they were able to do it fairly accurately. Now, when the eclipse that they were looking at occurred, the sun wasn't high in the sky. So it wasn't a perfect measurement, but it was good enough to get a lower limit on how far away the moon should be. And how big the earth is and how far away the sun might be. I mean, they, they were pretty close on all this stuff. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, when you think about the ancient Greeks and how they, you know, they thought that the world was flat, they knew a lot. They didn't think the world was flat. They knew you know, roughly how big the earth was. It's quite amazing. So anyway, right. But but I guess Hipparchus in, in what we're doing is most famously named for for working out star positions. Right. And And so he basically sat and created a map of the sky that very carefully tracked what did the stars look like where he was living exactly why he did this it's thought that it might have been encouraged by an observation of a supernova that made him just want to note down where everything is so that if something else new cropped up he'd be able to well know it was new and so 
using what's called an armory sphere, a way to very carefully measure the separations on the sky. He wrote down the positions for at least 850 stars. It's unknown quite what coordinate system he used, but his 850 stars, these formed the foundation for Ptolemy's work about 300 years later that basically charted a lot more stars and, again, formed the foundations for our modern way of looking up at the stars. And just to kind of get into the nitty-gritty here, when you talk about the use of an armillary sphere, what is... What did that look like? Like, what? How was this tool used to calculate star positions? Well, it it was a, a small device. You might call it a spherical astrolabe. It basically allowed you to mark out where the horizons were, and you had lots of different rings that you could rotate to start figuring out what the angles were. Now, I have to admit. To me, it looks like a very complicated, strange device, and I'm not entirely sure how you use it to make measurements, but I think it was a good way of lining things up and, you know, if this is here and this is here, and you can measure the angle off of set known positions, you can start to figure out where things go in the sky. So I don't think he was actually using it, holding it up in front of his eye and making measurements, but was rather using it to make calculations. I know where these things are. I've measured this relative to these. Therefore, this has to be in this location. Right. And so Ptolemy used sort of similar methods. But of course, with Ptolemy, he had everything orbiting around the Earth. Which is a bit problematic. And again, epicycles. Yeah, epicycles. Let's let's make this more complicated. But he produced him, you know, even more accurate map and, and series of stars. So then what was the next improvement on this this process? So you had Hipparchus working about 150 BC, Ptolemy working about 300 years later. And then while the Europeans were busy with their crusades, you had the Arabs working very carefully to produce new catalogs. And I'm going to destroy this pronunciation. I'm, I'm going to apologize, as I so often do on this show. There, there was someone by the name of Abd al-Rahman al-Safi who worked on a catalog of about 10,000 entries of the sun's position over the years. And he was very carefully also noticing when eclipses occurred. And it was off of a lot of his work that future work was able to say, okay, we now know how things are changing. We now know how the sun's position on the sky is changing over time. So then there was another astronomer, Ulg Beg, who compiled a catalog of star positions, this time instead of the 800, it was 1,019 stars. And this new star, it was probably consistent to less than your pinky's width across the sky. So he was making fairly precise measurements. Right. And it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the star names that we use today are Arab names. So, I mean, a lot of the modern names that we use, I mean, you talk about some Babylonian ones or some other backgrounds, but a lot of them are, are Arab names. I, and if you look at like big lists of all the named stars most of them have arab names so it's quite interesting so then kind of now we get into the modern age where you know maybe ptolemy was wrong maybe not everything (laughs) does revolve around the earth right well and here's the thing with the early debates on who is orbiting what 
it was easy to say on both sides, well, you're wrong because you're not fitting the data or, oh, no, I'm right. It's the data that has the errors. If you don't have extremely precise instruments, you can always blame the data. And it was Tycho Brahe who took the first really amazing set of data where his positions were the most precise ever made. If, if you hold your thumb up on the sky, it's two degrees across, depending on your thumb. Some thumbs are fatter than others. And each of those degrees can be divided up into 60 minutes. Each of those minutes can be divided up into 60 seconds. So you're looking at several hundred seconds spanning across your thumb. Now, his measurements were accurate to within 15 to 35 seconds of arc across the sky. Using his data, you could no longer argue with, with whether your math was right or wrong. It either was right or it was wrong. It had to match the data. That was the source that was the most reliable. And this, and, and this, this star data would, would be, then be used, right? So you could then say, well, Saturn was this far away from that star on this date. And, right. and that would be the way that you could then start to detect these these elliptical orbits, not circular orbits, right? Right. And so you could very precisely say, relative to the sun, relative to the earth, exactly where everything was located in the sky over time. And this is where poor Kepler was left struggling. He was a mathematician. He was very good at what he did. And he was looking for circular orbits. He was looking for perfect circles. He tried inscribing them in crazy geometries. He tried doing all sorts of crazy stuff before finally realizing the data said, and you can't argue with good data, the data said planets are moving in ellipses. Hmm. And that's, it's really interesting because it's like these star maps are so important for every other piece of astronomy. I mean, they're for, they, Without these star maps, we would have no way to know our, uh, you know, the sort of the, almost the truth about the the way the universe functions, about the fact that the sun is the center of the solar system and all the planets go around it, and it's this kind of background information. Somebody had to build this this background map that then you could you could then chart everything against, and if you didn't have that map, no other kind of astronomy was really going to be possible without it. So it's they're the unsung heroes. <laughs> and, and what's amazing is just how they did these things. So Brahe basically had a room where he had a device that could slide up and down, but only in one coordinate. It was uh, what's called a mural quadrant. And he waited for the Earth to rotate. And as the Earth rotated, it carried things in and out of his field of view, allowing him to very precisely, knowing that his object was secure, see this is definitely separated from this by this amount this is definitely separated by from this other thing by this amount and this gave him one part of the sky though there was still so much more of the sky waiting to be dis discovered and so since then we've been working to try and pull together the entire sky into one coherent catalog and that's where it starts to get tricky you have things getting carried over Poland where Brahe is working. You had things pulled over Arizona where later people started working. You had people 
working in South Africa, working in Australia, all using very precise instruments. Instruments that said, relative to where I'm located, this object has this angle in the sky and passed as high overhead as it could at this time, this next passed over a few minutes later. You need time, you need position. And now I have one very accurate stripe, another very accurate stripe, and then you have to figure out how to align the stripes of sky you very carefully matched. Right. And so they were building, I mean, a series of astronomers came one after the other, building more and more detailed star maps with, you know, filling in these these holes in the sky. But I think the, you know, the big question that they had to answer was how far away are these stars, right? I mean, we had a, you know, we could take a, make a very accurate sphere around the earth and, and position all of the stars on it. But a truer understanding of our place in the universe is to create a true 3D map where you know the accurate distance to each one of these stars. So how did that happen? Well, we had hints at how to do it as early back as Hipparchus. We we knew that using parallax, if you shift yourself from the left to the right, north on the planet, south on the planet, you can see nearby objects shift like the moon. And it was thought, well, if some of the stars are closer than some of the other stars, well, won't you see them shift left to right? Oh, like over the course of the year, right? So like right. while you're on one side of the the Earth's orbit around the sun, you're looking at the sun from one point of view, and then you wait six months and you're on the other side of the Earth's orbit, and then you'd see the star from another point of view, and the close stars should be wiggling back and forth against the background stars. And, and people started trying to make these measurements as early as the 1500s when we finally started getting good telescopes with good fields of view. But none of those early instruments were quite good enough. Uh, James Bradley made the, the first really solid attempt in 1729. And unfortunately, what he was able to instead discover was, well, light suffers aberration by our atmosphere. The planet is wobbling a little bit. It has nutation in its axis. And so he very carefully cataloged 3,222 stars and didn't find parallax. But when Frederick Bessel was working in the 1800s, he built on Bradley's work. And as he made his very careful, with even better optics, measurements, he was finally able to measure the stellar parallax of a star 61 Cygni that we now know has a parallax of about 0.3 arc seconds. So an arc second, just to give you an even clearer idea of it is, take a piece of hair, yank it out of your head, hold it taunt at arm's length, and the width of your piece of hair, that's one arc second on the sky. (laughs) So it was a third of a piece of hair held at arm's length, and he was able to measure that distance in movement through the wiggly jiggly atmosphere and and he had to wait for the earth to move six months and measure that shift compared to other nearby stars that were more distant and this was a a big parallax right this this was a huge parallax and so it's it's not an easy set of measurements to make and they made it and now what we talk about is milli arc seconds the Tycho catalog 
looked at parallaxes of 20 to 30 milli arc seconds. So here you're starting to look at two one hundredths, three one hundredths of an arc second of a shift. And it's it's complicated work, but we're able to do it. And this is giving us a three-dimensional understanding of nearby objects. So I guess the story comes around, right? There's the Hipparchus satellite launched about 20 years ago. And, and the Hipparchus mission built on that Tycho catalog. And it looked at two and a half million stars. And published in 2000, it was, again, able to make these milli-arc second measurements of parallax and it was also it it did two things it didn't just measure the parallax it also measured the radial motion of the star so it started to be able to give us distinct these things aren't just shifting due to the earth's motion but they're actually moving across the sky due to their own orbital motion and that starts to give you a full picture of, well, this thing is orbiting this way. This other thing is orbiting this other way. And now do we not only know how far away things are, but we know how fast they're moving across the sky. Now, its goal was actually not to do just the 20 or 30 milli arc seconds, but it actually got down to an arc second or less, depending on the star. So it it starts to give us a pretty good understanding of exactly where things are in our nearby universe. And so when we see these current maps, I mean, these these three-dimensional maps of our surroundings, these a lot of this work is done by by the Hipparchus spacecraft. It's amazing to think about, you know, Hipparchus detected all of this motion that all of the stars that we see in the sky today is just temporary. The the constellations that we see today i mean the stars are buzzing around you know right and left and up and down and and over thousands of years the constellations would look quite mangled and eventually lose their current shape and and this actually makes setting the zero points on any particular chart somewhat difficult you can't say this particular star is a zero point in fact, even naming of the stars gets difficult because if you look at some of the names of the stars, they're named Orion number, 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 number. But that star has moved and is no longer in the constellation Orion. <laughs> so when when we're creating maps, you, you have to have some solid reference frame. Turn right at the boulder. That's, that's how we do things when you drive in New Hampshire. <laughs> right, but right. you can't turn right at the red giant when that red giant is Myra and it's whipping itself through the galaxy. So we actually have to tie all of our coordinate systems to the most distant objects because, yeah, they are moving, but they're so far away we can't perceive any of that motion. So we tie all of our coordinate systems to actually quasars, active galaxies off in the most distant regions of the universe because they don't move as near as we can tell. Yeah, in a in a time frame that that astronomers are going to be concerned about. So so in the end the final mapping tool are these quasars. And so if astronomers want to judge whether things are moving, everything is done against this background of these quasars. And what's awesome about the quasars is they actually solve a lot of problems. They don't just allow us to tie together all the optical data. 
because luckily there's quasars in the entire sky and you can see them from satellites. So if someone in Australia is mapping in the optical, this small region of the sky, as long as it has quasars in it, we can tie in their small catalog with all the rest of the catalogs. But you start to get into trouble when you start looking at radio sources. How do I know this radio splop on my map corresponds to this optical clear, pretty shiny galaxy, unless I know for certain the two coordinate systems are the same. And again, quasars are nice and polite and occasionally radio loud. And so what we do is we also look for the quasars that give off radio emission. And we use them to ground our radio catalogs to our optical catalogs. And we work our way through the entire electromagnetic spectrum this way, looking for things far away, non-moving and shiny. And we make those our zero points. That's really cool. Well, thanks, Aparkas. And thanks, Pamela. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good, Fraser. I'll talk to you later. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.